That is good to know, isn't it? If you would take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verses 25 to 34 here in just a moment. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, I still didn't look at it, is around page 811 though, so uh, you'll be very close if you get there. Uh, Last week, we had a young couple visit us, Alex and Nicole Kerr, and uh, it's oh, I'm very thankful for any time uh, in our exploration to find new, some new missions partners to invest our missions budget in some new areas in the world. Uh, I've been encouraged to see uh, young folks wanting to serve the Lord, wanting to go, wanting to leave and sell everything and uh, to go. So... Um, Uh, those of us who are of a certain age and may make it our habit to complain about the younger generation, just talk to some of these uh, young folks and uh, you will be encouraged as I was with them. But as they were here, they mentioned uh, the disciple-making movement, all right? Uh, And uh, I had not heard that phrase before last week, Uh, But it sounds good, right? I mean, aren't we supposed to go into the world and make disciples? That sounds like a good thing. Well, the way that they used it was actually not just a phrase. It's actually a formal approach to uh, missions, uh, usually shortened to just be DMM. Uh, As I said, I hadn't heard of it. Chad had recently come into contact with it through his interaction uh, down at Camp Atterbury with a missionary there. Uh, And Tim Sanford has been very helpful to to, uh, shed some light on this. He knew about it far more than any of us did. And so this week I set out to learn more about it. And the reason why is because no strategy is absent theology. Every strategy has theological underpinnings and implications. And the ones that are connected to this strategy, to DMM, raised cautionary flags in my mind. And so over the next couple of weeks, uh, the elders are going to study this on our own. We're going to discuss it on our, in our next meeting on February 22nd. But I have no proposal to give you for partnership at this time, all right? We want to be sure that the ones with whom we partner are ones we are really with. You know what I'm saying? And if this had come up before now, you never would have met them. So in God's providence, we missed it until they came here. So please do continue to pray for them and pray for the mission they're going on in northern Thailand. It is an important place to take the gospel. And pray for us as elders that God would give us understanding and discernment as we work through these things, all right? Now, to the Bible. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. I'm going to read and then pray and then we'll... Begin. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and this is what the Spirit says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you recognizing that we live in a world that is full of tribulation, full of pain, full of heartache, full of loss, full of uncertainty. And we come to this text this morning while living in that world to hear our Lord Jesus say, do not be anxious. Lord, apart from your help and your spirit, we cannot obey this command. And so we pray now that you, by your spirit, will teach us what this means. That you will open our hearts to receive it as your word. And that you will give us grace to obey it in our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith is a key element of Christianity. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You see, Christianity is actually not first a matter of morality, of trying to become a better person or quitting bad habits or doing good in society or making church attendance your routine or being more generous with your money. Now, certainly those things come along with being a Christian, but Christianity is first a matter of faith. It's how we become Christians. The Apostle John, after having written his account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, finishes by telling us why he wrote all of it. He said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Without believing, without faith, there is no spiritual life. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. When we come to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust his sacrifice on the cross as the payment for our sin, and we believe not only that he died, but that he was raised again on the third day, we find forgiveness of sin. We are saved from God's judgment, which will come in the future, and we have eternal life. So, friend, if you're contemplating what it means to be a Christian, don't start anywhere else. The Christian message begins and really ends with Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried, raised, trusting in Him. 
Christianity is a matter of your whole life being changed. Not simply of tacking on some good habits to the life you already had. Not a matter of saying life's going pretty well. Think of how much better it could be if you trusted Jesus. No, no, no. The Bible's message is actually that we're all doomed. And that Jesus Christ has walked straight into that doom for us. And he has taken it all for all who would trust in him. Faith is the beginning point of the Christian life. Faith is a matter is priority in Christianity. But we, we don't stop with faith once we trust in Jesus Christ. That's not where faith ends, you see. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. So the Christian's walk, the way of living this life, is the way of trusting the Lord, actually being content with what He gives, content with what He takes away, to believe that He knows best and that He won't fail us, to live for Him, to honor Him, no matter the circumstance. We walk by faith not by sight. The circumstances of life don't determine how we walk. The reality of Jesus Christ and of the character of God determines how we walk. So that Proverbs 3 is right to, to press us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Now, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Just about any of you could probably come up here and you could take your turn with the microphone and say, hey, no matter what the circumstances of life are, walk by faith and not by sight. Lots of people could say it. It's easier said, though, than it's done. Because it's easier when peace like a river attendeth my way. When it's sunny and it's 80 degrees and I'm laying on the beach reading some book that I wanted to get to. Say, I'm walking by faith here. I can do this all day, Lord. But what about when sorrows like sea billows roll? That's really the test of faith, isn't it? When the waves of pain and of suffering and of heartache and of rejection and of rebellious children and distant spouses and the abandonment of friends and diminishing bank accounts with piled up bills and dire diagnoses, when all of those things roll in, when the waves of suffering come, when even the most basic things in life are threatened by the circumstances of life, will I walk by faith? Or do I worry? See, the reality, friend, is that these two things cannot coexist in the human heart at the same time. We are not trusting the Lord and worrying at the same moment. The words, oh, I fully trust the Lord, but... Those are not Christian words. But you see, according to the world's way of thinking, anxiety and worry are actually just part of life. It's just part of life. But in Jesus' mind, it's not. 
He looks us square in the eyes in the Sermon on the Mount and says we must not be like that. That's been the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount, hasn't it? That we are to be distinct. Distinct from those who pretend at religion. Distinct at those who are clearly in the world. We're to be a distinct people. And so he looks at us and says, you want to know how to be distinct? Do not be anxious about your life. There's a great distinction. To keep singing, it is well, it is well with my soul. When you're drowning in life. And so that's the first thing we'll think about. This command that Jesus gives. Do not be anxious about your life. Now I've said this before. But the practical steps that we take as Christians in order to grow is that we put off and we put on. We put off those things which do not please God. We put off those things which are sinful. We put off those things which would be associated with our life before Christ. And we put on holiness. We put on obedience. We put on faithfulness. We put on being more like Jesus. We put off and we put on. That is, that is kind of the, 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 the rhythm of the Christian life. That's what we do all the time. And so there's a put off and a put on in this text, but we start with the put off. We must put off anxiety, put off worry. Now this is where most of the text sits, is on this put off, okay? So most of the time that I spend is going to be in the put off section. If Jesus thinks it's important enough to have a great deal to say about not being anxious and only a small bit to say about putting something else on, well, who am I to go against Jesus' uh, pattern, right? So I'm going to do the same thing that he does, it, Lord willing, and with his help. Now, this is, the first thing to notice is that this is command. Do not be anxious about your life. Jesus does not say you'd live your best life now if you wouldn't be anxious. He doesn't say things would get better if you wouldn't be anxious. He doesn't give you scenarios. He's not trying to woo you forward. He says, do not be anxious for your life. It's a command, which tells us something about the nature of anxiety and worry, doesn't it? Anytime God says, thou shalt not, what comes after the thou shalt not? What is it? Sin, right? Sin, thou shalt not. And then some description of sin. Sin in thought, sin in action, sin, in, sin well, comes after thou shalt not. And here Jesus is saying thou shalt not. So what we should learn, what we should pick up there is that anxiety and worry, as Jesus is talking about, is sin. Now, we may think it's actually reasonable or understandable or acceptable. Or Toby, it's natural. You can't help worry. It's an instinct. I mean, something happens. It just, it's just my motherly instinct. It just comes. Well, based on what Jesus says, and, and actually, there's something right about that. Because Worry, anxiety is actually natural. It is instinctive by nature. But what Jesus is saying is it is a sinful instinct. He's saying don't settle for natural. 
you've been called to a supernatural way of living by the Spirit to develop godly instincts. And so Jesus forbids it three times. Look at this in verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life. In verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. The repetition is meant to emphasize how important this is. When I started driving uh, way back in the Stone Ages, it was Flintstone cars at that point. But when I started driving, my my dad told me that... um, if I ever had trouble, you know, my, the car broke down or there was a fender bender or something like that, and I needed to call him for help, that the first words out of my mouth should be, Dad, I'm okay. Here's what happened. Right? First time, call, Dad, this is what happened. Da, 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 da. So he just repeated, told me, okay, we'll take care of that. But the next, when something happens, the first words out of your mouth are, Dad, I'm okay. Right? Second time, I had actually flipped dad's truck into a ditch. And I had been hanging by the seatbelt until a nice lady who was getting off her shift at the hospital pulls over, helps me get out of the truck. And, and I don't know why she left, but she drove down the road. She was like, you're out, you're okay? I'm like, sure, I'm okay. And uh, she left and I, <laughs> I walk a quarter mile down the road, which is where the next house was. And knock on this door at 10 o'clock at night. I just dropped off my girlfriend. And I knock on, it wasn't Susan. I knocked on this door. <laughs> I knocked on this door. And, uh, and I said, and you know, it was a long time ago when you'd open your door if somebody knocks on it at 10 o'clock at night. And they open the door and they let me use the phone. And I call, I said, Dad, I flipped the truck. <laughs> and my dad, who was probably eating his face at that moment, says, Toby, are you okay? Yeah, 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 I'm okay, but I flipped the truck. We'll take care of that. And so then you might imagine I got an elongated version of the when you call, the first thing you say is, Dad, I'm okay. And that's something I'm passing on to my children. But Dad repeated it. So I'd get it. And the thing is, we need to get what Jesus said. We don't want to just fly by it. So don't just, don't just brush it off. Don't just think, well, Jesus, you don't really understand my life. I mean, these words, don't be anxious, that's probably good for all these church folks sitting around me. But not me. Friend, I would just gently warn you not to think that your life is unique. To think that you're the only one who faces pressure at work. You're the only one who's in the throes of financial hardship. You're the only one who's concerned about your children. You're the only one who's not sure how to face the uncertainties of the future. Don't think you're the only one. You're not. Jesus repeats the command because each of us must hear it and obey it. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And in giving this command, isn't it interesting how well Jesus knows the human heart? He knows how often we just we go to the absolute worst possible thing in our minds, don't we? 
He knows that if we're left to ourselves, our mind is going to run down the road of every single what if that we can find. Jesus knows that when uncertainty knocks on our door, we don't open it and then introduce uncertainty to our God and to his faithfulness, and to his trustworthiness, his power, his grace, his love, his sovereignty, his purposes. No, no, no. When uncertainty comes knocking at the door, do you know what we do? We let it in. We pour it a cup of coffee, and we listen to it. And we're captivated by its stories of potential danger and doom that are just around the corner. Jesus knows this. He knows that we will just tie ourselves up in knots, that, we will, that, that worry will wear us down and rob us of sleep and give us ulcers and make us irritable and give us digestive problems and put us in the hospital with heart attacks. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that we're like Martha in Luke chapter 12, that worry will distract us from intimacy with him. Friends, the devil would love nothing more than for worry to rob you of your prayer time, of your Bible time, of faithfulness to church, of giving, of all manner of things. Jesus knows that worry keeps us actually from walking by faith. And in fact, worry can keep a person from actually, genuinely, truly trusting in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is telling his parable of the soils, and then he explains it, and this is what he says. As for the, the seed that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. That word cares is the noun form of the verb to be anxious. In fact... Uh, The English word worry comes from an old German word, which means to strangle or to choke. I mean, worry will just get a stranglehold on your mind, won't it? It will choke your faith so that it cannot breathe. Jesus knows all of this, and so he says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And when we look closely at this text, we actually find six reasons not to be anxious. Six. All he had to say was, do not be anxious, because I told you so. He didn't have to give us all these reasons. All God needs to do is command us, and we are to obey, right? And yet Jesus graciously gives us this deeper understanding of anxiety, of worry, so to give us more motivation to obey, even more. Six reasons. The first one is that worry shrinks your view of life. Look at verse 25. Jesus asked this wonderful question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. You know what happens when we worry? When we worry, when we're anxious, we actually reduce our life down to the matters of the body. Food, drink, clothing, health, provision. And this is what we're consumed with as a culture. If you don't believe me, if you choose to watch the Super Bowl tonight, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that since we're live streaming, but I said it, Super Bowl, all right? If you choose to watch the Super Bowl tonight, watch the ads and see how many of them are focused on the body. 
What you'll eat, what you'll wear, feeding the body, clothing the body, caring for the body, refreshing the body, relaxing the body, indulging the body, entertaining the body. And look, it would be fine for us to put all this emphasis on the body if materialism were true. The whole belief system that the only thing that matters is what you can see and feel and touch. But Jesus, but it's not. Jesus says life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Worry shrinks away the reality of the soul. What does it profit a man? To have food and clothing and drink and health and provision and all of these things and yet lose his soul. Second reason, worry ignores the father's care. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Isn't it true that when you're, when you're really tied up in knots, right? Your stomach's always in knots, you're worried, you're anxious. You actually miss a lot of the simple pleasures in life. I mean, that's just generally, naturally true. You don't, you don't actually hear birds singing. You don't actually pay attention to the fact that, you know, trees are blooming in the spring. The only thing you can actually see is your problem. And Jesus is putting his hand under his chin and says, look up, look up. You see those birds? You see that field? I mean, imagine a bird flutters into the sanctuary, which has happened before. But a, a bird flutters in here, and it lands on the pulpit, and it's given Disney-like powers, and it speaks. And it tells us, I have no opposable thumbs. I have no job. I have no field to plant in. I have no money for groceries. But I have never missed a meal in my life. Because God cares for me. And Jesus wants to know if you and I will listen to the birds. If we'll look at the fields. Because even though birds have no soul and flowers and grass die and are used for fire, still God meticulously cares for them. Worry ignores that. Worry forgets that God cares for us even more, those who are made in his image, those who have been saved through the death of his son, Jesus. So Jesus says, do not be anxious. His eye is on the sparrow. So you should know he watches you. He cares for you. Third reason, worry is unproductive. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What a question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, how many problems have you solved by being tied up in knots about it? How many children who were rebelling against the Lord turned back because you wrung your hands enough? How much money went into your bank account because you lost sleep over it? How many years will be added to your life if you make a commitment to worry about disease and death? I 
What can worry add to your life? Nothing good. It's impotent. It's powerless. David Powlison says, Worriers act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. Central to worry is the illusion that we can control things. But we cannot. Fourth reason, worry demonstrates a lack of faith. Look at the end of verse 30. We'll start at the beginning of verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that is not an encouraging phrase. That's not like, oh, you have a little faith. You can move a mountain. Let's encourage that little faith, shall we? You should grow it. No, 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 no. O you of little faith is actually a rebuke in the Gospels. It's never an encouragement. So you remember when the disciples are on the boat and they're in the middle of the sea and the storm is raging all around them and then they wake Jesus up and they say, Master, don't you care? We're about to die. What does Jesus call them? O you of little faith. Jesus is walking on the water, and he invites Peter to, Peter says, call me out, Lord, and so he does, and Peter, by faith, gets out of the boat, begins to walk to him, and then he begins to sink, and do you remember what Jesus called him then? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes, and even though they had seen Jesus feed literally thousands upon thousands of people with nothing to start with, They are driven crazy by the fact that they didn't hit the grocery store for a loaf of bread on the way out of town. And what does Jesus call them? O you of little faith. O you of little faith exposes doubt and unbelief. You see, worry, anxiety means not trusting God, questioning his care, his power, his reliability. George Mueller said the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Fifth reason, worry is worldly. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Now the reality is, is there is godly concern that we ought to have in our lives because God has given us certain responsibilities. Responsibilities before Him and responsibilities to other people. It should be our concern to do what it is that God calls us to do in all the various avenues of life. But Jesus warns against worry and anxiety even in the things He calls us to. Because they're worldly. They put us in the camp with the Gentiles. Now, in Matthew's gospel, when you see that word, it it typically means outsiders. Those who do not belong to God. You know what happens when we worry? We conform ourselves to the pattern of this world. We follow along in the way that the world thinks. But the Bible over and over again says we must be distinct, a holy people, strangers and aliens here on earth. We must not think like the world or speak like the world or live like the world. And we certainly ought not to worry like the world. There's nothing godly about worry or anxiety. It's worldly. 
Last reason. Worry don't make sense. Now, I said don't because that's not, that's not good grammar. But that's how I'd say it if I wasn't writing it for a PowerPoint. Worry just don't make sense. Worry don't do nobody no good. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, this isn't even some, you know, grandiose idea. It's just common sense. You can't do anything about tomorrow. You cannot reach into tomorrow and do anything about it. All we can do is seek to honor the Lord today, be responsible before the Lord today. And we'll deal with tomorrow when it gets here. Lamentations 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The Lord gives mercy and strength and help day by day. It is like the manna in the wilderness for the children of Israel. You cannot stockpile it and use some of it tomorrow. Today's mercy is for today. But here's the good news. We can lay our heads on our pillow tonight and go to sleep knowing it'll be there in the morning. There's nothing that I will face in, the tom- in tomorrow that God is not prepared to give me mercy for and strength for and help for. Because you know what I have? Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. John MacArthur wrote, Christians who worry believe God can redeem them, break the shackles of Satan, take them from hell to heaven, put them into his kingdom, and give them eternal life, but they just don't think he can get them through the next couple of days. That is what worry believes. That's what this whole notion of thinking I can trust God and worry at the same time, he can handle all of that. He's going to renew the entire universe, and I don't think he can get me a piece of bread tomorrow. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And yet we buy into it. So Jesus says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Well, that's what we put off. Anxiety, worry. What what is it that we put on? Well, it's in one verse, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. God, instead of giving our time and our energy and our effort to analyzing uncertainties, to running through all the what-ifs, to wringing our hands and pulling out our hair, we should give our time and energy and effort to the Lord. In this sermon, Jesus has already taught us to pray for the kingdom. He's told us we must hunger and thirst for righteousness, and now he's saying, go after it. Go get it. Leave your worries with the Lord. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And replace that anxious energy with kingdom energy. You see, if you stop, and if I stop at just praying, 
just praying, just casting my cares, and then I'm going to sit around and see what God does. You know what will come rushing back immediately? The worry, the anxiety, the uncertainty, it will come rushing back. What we have to do is not simply put off in prayer, but we need to put on in action. We need to put on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, so don't be anxious about your life. Give your life to seeking first God's kingdom. Give your life to serving others. Give your life to giving. Give your life to sharing the gospel. Give your life to discipling others. Give your life to advancing his kingdom. Don't be anxious like the world. Be distinct and seek first God's righteousness. Pursue holiness. Put your energy into being more like Jesus, to having a life that conforms with what God calls us to as Christians. Be righteous in your words and in your deeds and in your motivations. Give yourself to righteous causes in this world, to what is right and what is just and what is good. Can I just tell you something? If we gave all of our energy to seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, do you know how much energy you'd have left to worry? None. You wouldn't have any. God's kingdom and his righteousness, these are worthy of your time and energy. Worry isn't. Friends, in the end, worry is focused on self. Seeking God's kingdom is focused on Jesus Christ. So put off anxiety and worry. Put on seeking first God's kingdom. Well, how do we do that? Well, obviously with God's help, but we must set the trajectory of our lives toward God instead of toward self. I want you to go back to the beginning of these two paragraphs. I want you to see the very first word. If you have the ESV, the very first word is what in verse 25? Therefore. Now, I skipped that. But we can't skip it because it connects this text to the one that's just before it. You remember last week? Verses 19 to 24, Jesus lays out two different ways to live, two options. The way to avoid is laying up treasures on earth, having a bad eye that's focused on yourself and leaves you in the dark, serving money. Friends, do you know what's more likely to consume your life and flourish if your treasure is on earth? If you have a bad eye focused on yourself, and if you serve money, you know what will flourish? Worry and anxiety. But what if your treasure's in heaven? What if you have a good eye focused on Jesus rather than yourself? What if your life is about serving God? What will consume your life then? What will flourish? God's kingdom. Righteousness. Friend, if you stay committed to the path named self, you will constantly fall into the ditch of worry. But if you stay on the path of the Lord and His kingdom, you will dwell in the valley of peace. But Jesus doesn't even just leave it at that, does He? He speaks to our provision and He gives us a promise. He says, if you'll obey this command, if you'll put off anxiety and you'll put on seeking the Lord's kingdom, all those things you would have worried about... God will take care of them. You'll have everything you really need. You'll have everything you truly need. And all these things will be added to you. 
The great news is that by the power of the Spirit, we can stop worrying about the affairs of this life and give ourselves to God's kingdom and righteousness because we can entrust ourselves to the Lord. He cares for us. He is our Father. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Either that is true or it is a lie. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that would train us to worry to think that we can control the uncontrollable would teach us that it is understandable and acceptable and natural to be anxious about our lives, to be anxious about tomorrow, to be anxious about the basic needs of life. Yet you have said no. You have called us to not be anxious. You have told us that worry will shrink our view of life and it will ignore your care and it is unproductive and that it's worldly and that it doesn't make sense. And so we pray, God, you will convince us by your spirit that these things are true. Use the arguments that Jesus makes against worry and against anxiety to train us in godliness, to give us godly instincts in the uncertainties of life so that we may be more like our Savior who did not worry but kept entrusting himself to you because you are a just judge. Help us to be like Jesus, to walk in those steps to shift our energies from worry and hand-wringing and sleepless nights to seeking first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, trusting that you will add all that we need in your time and in your way. We thank you that the worry, the anxiety of facing you at the end of life has been dealt with in the provision of Jesus Christ. That we need not fear that there is no wrath that remains for us to face because we're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with his blood. And we pray in his name. Amen.